0: Despite pre election precious metal turbulence, the gold miners are filing some very nice quarterlies. You're listening to Kicko Roundtable. I am your host, Michael McRae. With me as editor is Niels Christensen. How are you doing, Niels? Happy Friday. Happy Halloween, guys. Correspondent Paul Harris. How are you, Paul?
1: Very well. Good afternoon. And
0: our special guest is Daniel Earl, president and CEO of Solaris Resources. We're delighted to have Daniel on the pod. Solaris has its roots in two of the biggest heavyweights in our sector, Ross Beatty and the recently passed Dave Lowell. Daniel, can you tell us about Solaris and Augusta Group?
2: Oh, I, I mean, I'd love to. Uh, so Solaris, uh, the way I describe it is as a copper gold growth and discovery story. And it's managed by the Augusta Group, which of course has a totally unrivaled track record of value creation, specifically in this niche of exploration and development in the mining sector. And so that totals over $4.5 billion of exit transactions in the last decade. And as you mentioned, the company is backed by uh, Ross Beatty, but then we also have Lucas Lundeen backing the company. And together with Richard Wark, you've got three of the most successful players in the mining industry. Uh, so our principal project, that's the David Lowell discovery in Ecuador, and it's called Warinza. And this is a project that's special because it's got a high grade open pit resource. And we're now growing this in leaps, leaps and bounds with the drill results that we've been putting out. And then even beyond Warinza, you've got a whole portfolio of grassroots exploration projects. These are also David Lowell projects, uh, but these are David Lowell's targets for future discoveries. So we've got a large portfolio in this company, but then we've got over 20 million in cash and we're very very well supported with the group that we have. So we're very excited about it.
0: We're delighted to have you on because we want to have a longer discussion about copper. And then obviously with uh, Dave Lowell's uh, discoveries around that uh, really just uh, being responsible for jump uh, jumpstarting or being such a huge part of that industry. But first, we lead with gold, uh, Niels, It looks like uh, Peter Hug was correct. Uh, that is the precious metal division head at Kiko. He was warning us that uh, as we lead up to the election, uh, gold was going to have a tough time of it.
3: Well, yeah, you got to, you got to take stuff off the table, and I think. But um, if you look at now it, you so tell you know, <laughs> <laughs> if but if you look at it, so yeah, gold had a sell-off, but. We haven't tested any major support levels. Yes. We broke through 1900 um, but we've been flirting around with that for what, weeks, and nearly months now. Um, you know, so, I mean, this is, this is just profit taking and, and, and positioning ahead of the election. I mean, everybody says, you know, like all the pundits say that there's going to be a blue wave uh, you know, Democrats are going to take the Senate uh, and they're going to take the white house, but there's that memory of 2016 and it's just, Anything can happen. You just you have no idea what's in store when the votes are counted, and and if it's going to be con, uh, contested by either party. Um, so it, it's prudent that that um, uh, investors take some money off the table.
1: I think one thing that's um, showing up is this election is going to have a very high voter turnout compared to previous elections. I think there's already been some eighty million votes cast by by mail so they're expecting very very high turnout this time
3: yeah but now it's just you know just how many of those votes actually get counted i mean there's you know uh uh court battles back and forth about you know when how when these ballots get counted how they get counted everything like that um but the 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 thing though too is that um i think we really need to start looking past the election it doesn't matter what party is is in power um, you looked at GDP numbers that came out this week, uh, third quarter, they rose, uh, 33% after a 31% decline in the second quarter, we're still down, you know, people are expecting a, a 4% decline for 2020. That means no matter who's in power, stimulus is coming. And that, that is what gold investors need to pay attention to forget about this politics. Now, um, it's all, it's all about inflation and stimulus. Daniel. But it, but
2: isn't but isn't that the opportunity meals? I mean, there's you know exactly. If you, look, if you look at the if you look at the indicators like the you know the polling that's been done, notwithstanding 2016 as an outlier where the polls were, you know, were incorrect. But but polling and the betting markets and so on. There's broad agreement around what the outcome is likely to be. Now, obviously, we have the anxiety in the market, the position squaring, and people taking money off the table in advance of you know this potential volatility with the the contested outcome and whatnot. But there's broad agreement around the outcome that this is going to be, you know, in a most likely event, a blue wave. And I think there's the opportunity for investors to position themselves, because I don't see any way that that's not going to be massively positive for gold investors. If you think about the amount of stimulus that's going to come through, uh, the pressure that that's going to put on the U.S. dollar, and and therefore the opportunity for gains in gold stocks.
3: I I completely agree but even and but this is what I'm saying too is that even if it's not a blue wave you know like the democrats and republicans you know who matter whoever controls congress is still going to have to do something to support the economy that's looking at at a 4% decline so I agree I think the blue wave is is probably the best scenario for gold they're going to just pump trillions of dollars into the economy in the next 4 years you know but you know whatever it is I think you 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 buy now and just ride the wave higher. The only problem is that you know do you know do you get a a two trillion dollar stimulus? Do you get a, a half a half trillion stimulus? Yeah, and that's and that's where that's where people are sort of hedging their bets now.
0: I just wonder if uh, the Republicans uh, hold on to the Senate. Um, I saw at 538, I believe, that uh, blue wave where you get the House, uh, the presidency, and the Senate was uh, ranked at a, over 70% uh, per 538. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, if uh, the Republicans do hold on to the Senate, why wouldn't they just say no? Why wouldn't they just sit on their hands and then uh, we just don't get that uh, other stimulus?
3: Well, because again, they're, you know, they're staring at another election in two years. So they can't, they can't just sit on their hands. Like they can't just, they can't not do nothing. And after the election, stimulus does not become a a political football to be punted around anymore. There's no, there's no partisanship left.
2: Yeah, it's just too dire a situation with the second wave now taking the totals higher than the first wave. I mean, it's really critical. So I think either way you get stimulus with the split government, you, you definitely still get stimulus. It's just with the blue wave, you get way more of it.
3: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> we're going to have the election uh, Tuesday night. Uh, please uh, stay tuned to uh, Kitco. It's going to have huge ramifications, which are happening uh, to precious metals. And uh, yes, uh, we're all eagerly looking forward to that. I think I also saw in a note with uh, Jim Wickoff that uh, he was talking about uh, probably uh, more choppiness on the Monday and Tuesday, uh, just kind of leading up until we get uh, maybe some clarification on uh tuesday sorry i, I want to move it along we should switch uh, to juniors uh paul um falco resources uh made a deal with glencore
1: yes falco resources um putting it agreed to deal with glencore um for base medals offtake for its horn fight project in Rouen Noranda in quebec um that's got a, an estimated mine life around 15 years and getting that uh, offtake agreement was seen as one of the the crucial things for that project to go ahead. Um, the base metals there will be processed at Glencore's Hornsmelder, which is uh, just down the road. So very positive uh, piece of news there.
0: Uh, you also like the drilling hit at Pure Gold.
1: Yes, uh, Pure Gold with its Madsen project, which is now called um, the the Pure Gold Project, confusingly enough, in the Red Lake District of Ontario, and they're due to start producing um, before the end of the year. And um, doing a lot of underground drilling to expand the resource. And uh, they put out a great hit this week of uh, 1.2 meters grading 1,147.1 1, grams per ton. So a lot of stuff still to be found there at Madsen.
0: Uh, we're always lucky to have on Paul Harris because he seems to get invited to everything. Uh, he's always, uh, sending me notes on the latest panel that he's been at. Uh, can you tell us at the panel you're at and, uh, what you learned about, uh, a in 2021, Paul?
1: Yes, this was. Uh, I, w- I wasn't on the panel, I was watching this or listening to it. It's uh, the panel at the one to one conference this week, and um, they had a panel on MA and things of that with some uh, some very um, wise people, such as uh, John Goodman from Dundee, Warren Erin from Rosso Asset Management, and Fahad Tariq of uh, Credit Suisse. And uh, Fahad said, you know, um, that they don't see Big scale lemonade coming, not with the majors, not with the tier one gold producers, but they see the action coming and the mid tiers and the juniors, um, and I think it's really going to take off next year. So a lot of conversations are happening. The one thing holding things up is the inability to do site visits because of COVID-19 travel restrictions. So they expect things to really take off next year, um, in part because of that, but also just the, the lack of resources out there. The, the message basically was the mid-tiers have got to start buying. Um, Warren Irving, he mentioned uh, one major that, um, you know, he's going to be out of resources in six years. And uh, I think we all know who that is, although we sort of don't say the word, and say the name. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, they think there's going to be a lot of smaller companies bought up next year.
0: Daniel, what are you seeing?
1: Well, no,
2: I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if, if, you, if you look at the comments actually uh, at the same conference coming out of Sean Boyd from Agnico, I mean, he was saying that, you know, what the seniors need to do this cycle is be disciplined with their capital allocation and not go out and buy things at, at the high prices that we have. I think that that's a terrible mistake. I think the problem the last cycle is that they were buying at the end of the cycle. But if you look at how to create value in this business, it's a depleting business. You need to be buying at the troughs in the cycle. And so you look at the mid-tiers, uh, like Equinox being a great example of this run by Ross Beattie, who's one of the most successful people in the industry. Well, his last ask acquisition of, of the Mesquite mine, that was you know, only a couple of years ago, but the gold price was $700 an ounce lower. And so you know that asset simply, uh, at the time, it was challenged in, in New Gold's portfolio. And of course, New Gold had its you know, capital issues with with uh, delivering the Rainy River project at the time. That's what creates the opportunity. You know, I mean, that kind of a, that kind of an asset would be spinning off free cash flow in this price environment, and it simply wouldn't be available. So I, I think you know the, the the seniors are playing to a different audience than I think retail investors. Retail investors understand that in a uh, in a gold bull market, you need to go with growth. That's where the outsized returns are going to be. Whereas with the the seniors, they're they're playing a defensive game of not making mistakes, and I think that may appeal to large institutional investors. But that's not the, the square that we play.
3: Well, I was going to ask how do you how do you sort of uh, square the circle in like or balance out the need for for investor um, to give back to investors and to grow your 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 pipeline. Um, you know, like, I, I guess like you look at you look at some of the we've had earnings come out and um, we haven't really seen uh, the investor reaction to some of these really, really good earnings. And I think like, how, you know, like it, it feels like the mining companies really need to give back to investors to get them drawn in again. So we, we have sort of this new capital uh, flowing in instead of just circ- recirculating all of this, all of this old money. Um, is it, how, do you, how do you balance that
2: out? I don't know. It feel, I don't know what Paul thinks, but it feels to me like deja vu where, where you know, in the last cycle, we uh, instituted these dividends across the space, not just in golds, but silvers as well. Pan American and the other silver companies brought in dividends. And I don't remember that bringing in generalists in in, in, in droves into the space. And certainly if they did come in, they didn't stay with us all the way through the trough. So I think gold companies need to be gold companies. And I, re- I reject the idea that they need to become like utilities or something. It doesn't fit with the actual business dynamics that we have.
1: This was one thing that the panel commented on. It said in the last cycle, when the generalists came in very late and they were left holding the bag when the prices just fell away. Um, and so these are things that inevitably continue or perpetuate the fact that it is a cyclical business. Um, The bigger companies, as Daniel said, perhaps too defensive when they should be more aggressive. They miss their opportunity and end up having to buy later in the cycle at higher prices. This time around, there seems to be more um, stock transactions rather than getting the checkbook out. So, you know, companies, they're boosting their dividends. They're trying to get their stock prices up. Perhaps one of the, the outcomes of that is they'll be able to do more transactions with their own paper rather than putting out big money.
0: Are we still waiting for the generalist?
2: <laughs> I, I, I'm, absolutely, I'm mean, waiting to you, go to... <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: I mean, you can see it in the valuations. These these gold companies are incredibly cheap. I mean, even, even when we had um, you know a $2,000 gold price back in July, I mean, these companies were trading off 1,400, 1,450 gold at the time, You know, whereas, whereas peak valuations, where you have generalists already in the place in size, uh, to generate those peak valuations, gold companies will be trading at a premium to the spot gold price at the time. So, so we're nowhere near that kind of an environment with what we see in the market today.
0: Let's uh, talk about those numbers. Uh, we had uh, the biggest news of the week was the quarterlies that uh, came out. Uh, we finally got out from underneath uh, the COVID nineteen disruptions. Oh. And we had gold trading mostly at 1900 for this quarter. Uh, the companies are out doing themselves with superlatives record this and record that. Uh, the world's largest gold miner, uh, that would be a Newmont uh, announced a 60% increase to its dividend. Uh, that's a sick that's a second dividend increase in 2020. It also recorded its best quarter in history. It realized an average gold price of 1913 and with an all-in sustaining cost of uh, 1020, that was realizing over $900 on every ounce it sold. Agnico Eagle doubled its net income in the first nine months of the year at $306 million compared to the previous year. Agnico took a hard hit when Quebec shut down. On top of the good results, the company increased its quarterly dividend by 75%. Yamana just had its results today. Cash tripled. Dividends are up 425%, I believe, going back from 18 months. Uh, the company also shook off COVID-19, getting record production from some of its operations. Uh, you also noted that uh, News about uh, Malarctic and Yamana, Paul.
1: Yes, um, Yamana put out a, a very bullish announcement on the East Goldie potential of the to expand the extend the mine life of Canadian Malarctic. Um, they said the mineralization is currently defined over fourteen hundred meters of strike length and twelve hundred meters of vertical interval. Um, drilling has made intercepts seven hundred meters below surface down to nineteen hundred meters below surface. With the grades of up to about, uh, you know, seven grams a ton. So, looking like there's many, many years more to come there.
3: Go ahead, Niels. So, I just wanted to say, if Tesla came out with a headline saying it tripled its cash flow, um, how many investors would be jumping into that stock? Like, I'm just, I'm amazed that you know we're still wondering where the generalists are when we see some of these numbers. And we, and this wasn't even a really big surprise. We were, we were expecting this. Um, you know, two months ago.
0: Yeah. I mean, the timing's terrible right now, just because what's happened with the uh, market. It's, uh, so, um, you know, there's probably going to be a, you know, Barrick might be better timed when they actually release, I believe probably about uh, the second week of November or something like that. Sorry, Paul.
1: Yeah. But um, a lot of the companies are saying <clears throat> they, they fully expect to heat their, their guidance for the year and they fully expect fourth quarter results to be similar to third quarter results. So obviously they're gonna come out after the, uh, the US election. So there's a lot of potential there for them to sort of really start riding up when people are focused on things other than the presidential election.
0: Uh, Paul, anything in uh, the quarterlies that uh, stuck out to you?
1: Um, a, a couple of things. I mean, you, you've mentioned some of the companies, everybody seems to be putting up their dividends. Um, a lot of companies are clearing debt, uh, coal mining for one, uh, Alamos Gold also cleared their debt. One, one thing I've noticed on the results out so far, um, all in sustaining costs pretty much across the board is increasing bar one company so far. That's Eldorado Gold. As far as I'm aware, they're the only, people that, uh, the only company that's seen a reduction in its all in sustaining costs. They reduced theirs by 11% in the quarter.
0: I did notice that uh, across um, uh, the all in sustaining costs seemed a little higher on, um, on that. Uh, what happened with Eldorado Gold that they were able to get it lower?
1: Well, they've been bringing on new production, expanding, so oh, yeah. they're producing more ounces. That That's a key thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, of course, uh, headed up by uh, George Burns. Uh, Daniel, uh, enough about gold. Uh, we had you on uh, to talk about uh, that more exciting metal, and then that would be copper. Um, I believe we've been hitting a two-year high. We're seeing also what is happening with uh, EV metals. How is copper looking right now, Daniel?
2: Well, copper looks great. I mean, it, it, it's always a—I always find it funny with the, when I speak to retail investors and tell them that copper is actually massively outperformed gold, and it—and it usually comes as a total surprise. I mean, copper's up over fifty percent. I mean, it's up over a dollar a pound off the March lows. Gold is looking at something like a—you know—kind of a thirty percent move to where we are today. But even at the peak for gold, it was still well below where, where copper is gone. Um, and, and that's, you know, there's, of course, two sides to the story. There's supply and demand. And on the supply side, uh, you've got major production centers for copper. Over a third of world supply is coming out of Chile and Peru alone. And they've been hit really hard by COVID if you look at the numbers, particularly in Peru. They're just terrible. Um, so you've got production down quite a bit. And then on the demand side, you've got half of the world's demand from China alone. China, China exited the COVID pandemic all the way back in March. And if you look at most parts of the country outside of Hubei and some of the more distant Xinjiang and, and so on, economic activity is all the way back to pre-COVID levels. And you can see that in the in the stock market, which is at new highs. It's fully broken out. I mean, the currency is surging. The central bank has to intervene to tamp that down. It's just um, going all guns blazing in in, in in China. So that's basically what you have and what brings you to the copper price today. But you, you got to remember this is the beginning of the global economic cycle. We're just coming out of a global recession right now. And so as we start to get into next year, where you see the stimulus pouring in in the different um, um, kind of economic regions, we get a vaccine at some point next year. And the benefit from that, we're going to go back to synchronized global growth. And that's when you're really going to start to see copper take off. That'll be next year and the following year. And that's even before you get in the electrification megatrend, which really starts to have an impact uh, 2024, 2025,
1: and beyond. Paul? And I take on board Daniel's point about Chile and Peru, but um, they've both experienced COVID in a very different way. Uh, Chile pretty much managed to keep its mines operating, and uh, the state copper company, Goodelco, released its results, and uh, they're making super profits, Um, renounced profits of 1.1 1.1 billion through the first nine months of this year, an 86% increase over last year. So, um, despite the the difficult conditions, the copper companies in Chile have still been able to put the red metal out. Daniel? Yeah, yeah. They're they're they're, they're certainly making a lot of money. A lot of the, uh,
2: the the major copper miners are are making tons of money at the moment. But you know, uh, Cadelco, if you recall, in 2017 they had a 25 billion dollar capital program. They've been slashing that left and right. There is no way that they're going to be delivering on their copper production targets over the next decade.
1: Just a follow up on that, Daniel. Um, In in the the news release they put out, um, the Chuquicamata Kamata underground mine, they said it's 99.5% complete. And they think that will come in $700 million under budget. But yeah, else across the board, they've been slashing their or reducing their budget.
3: Um, Daniel, is is there some concern though that um, this COVID, you know, how does that impact growth going forward? Like, I mean, we're starting to see the second wave. I mean, um, I know Quebec, uh, their their um, virus cases have actually are higher now than they were back in the springtime, and and I'm sort of wondering. I mean, is there concern that copper is getting ahead of itself, or is is the growth still there? It just gets pushed back until. Until COVID gets under control,
2: yeah. Like it, I mean, in terms of economic growth in North America and, and Quebec, or I mean, um, you know, in, in, in North America and Europe, rather, you've got, uh, yeah, you've got a serious resurgence of COVID, and so the numbers are actually higher than they we were during the, uh, the kind of the, uh, the 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 first wave peaks, uh, but also we've gotten better. Uh, dealing with COVID, right? So we understand a little bit more about COVID now, and so we're better able to uh, mitigate against the risks of COVID with mask wearing and so on, rather than going back to the full-scale lockdown. So the economic impact is less, the mortality and so on with some of the therapeutics and treatments and so on that have come through is less. So I don't expect that we're going to see the same sort of full-scale shutdown with double-digit, you know, kind of economic declines for the second wave. And we we are kind of coming in now with uh, we stimulus and so on, which is helping to you know support the economies. So but governments tend to respond slowly, but when they respond, they respond in force, and we're seeing that play in as well.
0: How are uh, those, uh, Daniel? How are some of those uh, large, um, uh, large Chilean mines looking uh, for copper supply over the long term? What is uh, what's the supply picture?
2: Well, it's a dire uh, situation. I mean, the, the, the you know Chile, like Chile in particular, and Peru to a lesser extent. I mean, you're, you're looking at these. Um, uh, basically, the mega mines of, of the world, you know, the top 10 global copper mines account for about 25% of the world's supply. These mines have been expanded and expanded again. Some of them have been expanded multiple times, like Cerro Verde is working on its fourth expansion. Um, and so they're they're basically tapped out in terms of what their growth potential is. And they're starting to run up against the, the kind of the natural constraints of uh, resource depletion and grade declines. Water scarcity is becoming a huge issue for these projects, power supply issues. And, and so on. So the outlook for you know kind of the main mines that have been supplying the, the copper industry is not good, over you know over the over the balance of, over the over the next decade or so, and even beyond. So so you've you've certainly got and whether you're looking at Wood Mackenzie data or CRU or whoever your favorite forecaster is, you really start to see the copper supply rolling off, uh, over the course of this decade. And, um, and 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 then how are we going to replace that supply? Well, if we've already expanded all the big mines, it's got to come from new mines. And so where are those new mines? I mean, there's maybe a handful. Paul knows more of them than I do, but there's maybe a handful of copper explorers and developers out there that legitimately have a shot of bringing a project online in the next 10 years. That's not nearly enough. We need something like 100 new mines to meet the challenges of supply, to meet the electrification and the decarbonization uh,
1: Initiatives and announcements that we've seen globally. So it's a really daunting challenge. And and to add to that, um, last Sunday the people of Chile voted in a referendum to re to draft a, a new constitution, um, and that is widely expected to include various elements that will be will impact mining and potentially in a negative way. So things about indigenous peoples' rights. Um, about water usage or water rights, uh, potentially greater rent-seeking from governments, the national and local government, um, to help repair the damage of the COVID economic crisis. Um, so the the mining sector in Chile is, is moving into a, a period of sort of uncertainty for the next year. The constituent assembly is going to be voted on in April. Um, they'll have about a year, nine months, 12 months, to draft a new constitution and then uh, Chile faces a mandatory election of all citizens to vote on that. Um, So there's potentially some changes coming down the pipeline for the mining sector there.
0: We mentioned it at the uh, start of the pod, uh, Daniel, but uh, uh, I think we should just finish on that. Uh, Who was uh, Dave Lowell?
2: I mean, uh, David, David Lowell is an absolute legend in the mining industry. I mean, this is, you're talking about the most successful copper explorer of all time. So he co defined the porphyry copper model uh, way back in the 60s, which is now by far the most important deposit type for copper. It's, it's you know, 60% of the world's resources are represented in that deposit class. Uh, so that's where it began. And then, and then he basically took that model out into the field. And went and made more discoveries of greater consequence than anyone in history, and, th- and these include, um, you know, discoveries like uh, you know Zaldivar, Balo Alimbrero, which was the biggest mine in Argentina until recently, uh, you know, and then the greatest discovery of them all, Alaska Dita. I mean, this is the world's largest copper mine uh, by a, just a massive margin. It's, it's more than twice the size of the next largest mine. So there's there's no understating David's um, significance in terms of the copper industry.
0: Uh, there was a nice uh, video. It's, qu- it's, uh, it's a little old, but uh, that was uh, by Tommy Humphries. And it was just a short documentary on Dave. But uh, if you're not familiar with his contribution to the sector, uh, and just also kind of capturing kind of the excitement. That you can have in the sector, it's just kind of worth a. It's just worth a watch. I'd like to move on to our number of the week. That is a figure that uh, stuck with you, that uh, was uh, illuminating of the industry. We always start with a guest, Daniel. What's your number?
2: You know, I don't even think it's about industry. You know, given where we are on the calendar, my number is two seventy, which is the number of electoral college votes you need to win the election. <laughs> That's everything right now. I mean, that you can just see it in the markets. People are sitting on the sidelines and just waiting.
3: We need that result, and then we can move on.
0: <laughs> Niels, what's your number?
3: Um, so mine is, uh, mine is twenty nine. Um, more specifically, twenty nine percent. That's the decline that jewelry sales saw in uh, the third quarter, according to uh, World Gold Council. And I bring that up because. Um, on the same day that the uh the royal gold council released this figure uh Tiffany and uh, LVM8, uh, LVMH announced that their historic uh deal their their the, the buyout is back on at a lower price uh 15 uh, uh over 15 million versus six, or, uh, 15 billion versus uh the the initial offering around 16 billion um, so yeah so that's <laughs> terrible time to be in the jewelry business.
0: <laughs> I was, uh, you know, the odd times that I drop into that, I just like looking at that chart because you can see the amount of gold that uh, is demanded by ETFs. It's just, it's almost entirely inversely correlated to jewelry demand.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, and this is, and this is the only real thing that matters for gold. And that probably will matter for gold for at least the next couple of years, as long as we have, uh, zero interest rates, as long as we have the Fed balance sheet growing at record pace, um, you know, investor demand for gold is 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 going to be massive. I think.
0: We'll probably have on the upside, though, you'll have all that pent up demand once, uh, you know, if gold starts to uh, soften, because uh, I can't imagine, you know, uh, it's 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 such a sought after commodity. In, well, yeah,
3: uh, and actually, to, to point this out, actually, the, the WGC did also say that uh, bor- uh, barring coin demand rose in the third quarter, and that rose as prices uh, hit all time yeah. highs. So I think there is some physical demand out there it's just jewelry. There's such high premiums on, on that, on the markup. Um, it, yeah, it, it's, it's not, you'd rather you'd, for the pure play would be bar. You'd be bullion bars and coins.
0: Paul, your number.
1: I have two numbers this week. I have a fun one and a serious one. Which one do you want first?
0: <laughs> serious one.
1: Serious one. Okay.
0: 2.7%. I know that number. What is it?
1: Well- You touched on it earlier, 2.7% is the yield of Newmont's dividend now that it's increased it to $1.60 a share, which Newmont says exceeds the median of the S&P 500 index. And I think um, why it's significant is it's perhaps further evidence that the gold industry is growing up and working really hard to attract investors back to the space. Um, And so the, the fun one, and it's perhaps the largest number we'll ever have on this podcast, is uh, 10 quintillion. (laughs) Psycho! (laughs) Any guesses? (laughs) 10 quintillion dollars. That's the psycho, that's the psycho meteor. (laughs) Well, this is a follow-up to the asteroid number from last week. There's there's another asteroid, and this one is estimated to have 10 quintillion dollars worth of iron and nickel. Wow. Apparently, it's just made entirely of iron and nickel. It's called 16 Psyche. It's about 140 miles wide, and it's flying around out there somewhere.
0: That would be an awfully big battery if you could actually hook up to it. <laughs> My number is 19.9%, and uh, that is uh, dear old Canada's uh, projected uh, deficit as a percentage of GDP. Uh, it shows you that uh, everybody is uh, doing some... Uh, uh, how would you say uh, they're all the Western economies uh, worldwide are uh, propping up their economies as they deal with this COVID-19. And then also that creates uh, the um, creates a narrative for gold, doesn't it, Niels?
3: Mm-hmm. If if you listen quietly, you can hear the of the printing presses <laughs> just, you know, collectively around the world.
0: <laughs> Niels, uh, we're rebooting uh, the gold survey uh, with Peter Hug. Can you tell us how people can find out more?
3: Um, Kiko.com. Actually, we just published it today. Uh, yeah, Peter's uh, talking about it. He's giving his uh, his uh, uh, two cents on the survey. Um, both this week, both Wall Street and Main Street are, are bullish on gold. Wall Street more so than than Main Street, I think. And this is the, this is all to do with the election. Wall Street's looking way past the election. They're looking at inflation. They're looking at all this all the stimulus that's going to be pumped out. Um, retailers are just are really focused on who is going to be. Who's going to lead, who's going to be in Congress and who's going to be in the White House. Um, So yeah, so they, you know, um, 67% of uh, analysts we talked to are bullish on gold, but only 52% of retail investors uh, that took part in the online survey are bullish on, uh, on the metal for next week.
0: I'd invite our listeners uh, to drop in on Fridays and uh, check out uh, the gold survey. It's uh, very valuable in terms of uh, information and uh, outlook, uh, a good trend line for what is happening in uh, the precious metal space. I I Uh, do
3: believe that it is the only short term sentiment forecast out there in the gold market that you can get on
0: a weekly basis, you know. uh, Paul, you have a conference coming up.
1: Yes, uh, the tenth to the thirteenth of November, the Columbia Gold Symposium, and uh, we're going to have Daniel um, on the project day talking about uh, Waransa.
0: Daniel, uh, is there any news uh, that we can look forward to out of Solaris uh, over the next twelve months?
2: Oh well, tons of tons of news. I mean, um, the most important of which is just going to be the drilling that we're doing. So investors are looking forward to, you know, more intervals of long long intervals of high-grade copper mineralization from Warrensia. Uh, this is in the central zone where we've been, uh, been drilling and we will continue to drill. But I think one of the things that, um, that, that they should absolutely be paying attention to is, is the drilling that we're, we're about to start at the West Zone. This could be a new discovery for us. And we'll start drilling there in the next month. And then finally, uh, towards the end of the year, we're going to be testing our first large-scale gold target. Um, so I'd love to have the discovery there to talk about before the end of the year.
0: Terrific. Uh, Daniel, what's your Twitter handler if they want to follow you or they want to follow Solaris?
2: It's my name, Daniel Earl three.
0: And that's with an E at the end, two E's in Earl.
2: That's correct. Yes.
0: (laughs) You can reach me at, uh, Michael McCray and that's with two C's on Twitter. Niels is at Niels underscore C and Paul is at, uh, Co, I think that's Call Gold Letter for uh, Columbia Gold Letter. Is that correct or Columbia Gold Symposium, Paul? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we are now on iTunes. Uh, we're uh, rolling out this uh, podcast. Uh, we're getting ourselves more index. Please subscribe. Please rate us. And if you like what you hear, please tell a friend. Uh, you can also subscribe to other shows, such as Kiko Interviews, where we reprise um, our favorite video interviews. I want to thank uh, Daniel Earle uh, for joining us uh, for the podcast. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks so much. We are going to reprise our interview with David Garofalo, former CEO of Goldcorp, who's going to talk about consolidation in the intermediate space. Thank you very much.
4: David Garofalo, Chairman and CEO of Gold Royalty Corp, joins us today. He was former CEO of Goldcore, one of the largest miners in the world at one time. David, it's such a pleasure to speak with you today. Welcome back to Kitco. Thanks for having me on. There's a host of uh, topics we'll cover today, but let's start with your market outlook because after you left Goldcore, you've been involved with several projects. One of them being a gold um, fund. So you are. CEO of the Marshall Precious Metals Fund. What's it like managing the other side of the the other side of the hedge, so to speak?
5: Well, you know, I, I deliberately positioned myself at this point in my career to develop development stage end of the spectrum, because the dynamic in the sector is such that we've seen reserves actually decline by about fifty percent in the last decade, uh, because companies and the producers in particular have been focused on margin profitability returning capital to the shareholders as they should they should be running their businesses as businesses but expiration has been sacrificed and that's become an existential issue now for the sector with reserves declining that's a leading indicator of where production is going to go so they're going to have to redeploy capital and refine that lost art of mine construction so I've set up this fund, the Marshall Precious Metal Fund, to invest in early stage exploration. And really, until about six months ago, the juniors couldn't raise a dime to save their lives. And now they're starting to see an influx of capital because the market and producers are starting to recognize they need these juniors to be successful to replace a depleting reserve base that they're all enduring right now.
4: Okay, So you've obviously spoken to some other fund managers in the industry. What are they thinking? How are they feeling about the space right now? Like you said, we've seen an influx of capital. Is this cause for celebration or concern? Because it has gone up very quickly.
5: No, I think it's cause for celebration. And the good thing is we are starting to see some of that capital deployed into these early stage opportunities, both in terms of grassroots exploration through the juniors. And a lot of them have been able to recapitalize themselves and deploy capital into the ground. But what we haven't seen is development stage opportunities really enjoy that influx of capital, but inevitably they'll have to. Uh, The ones that are in, say, the PEA stage, pre-feasibility or feasibility stage, the ones that are going to represent pipeline opportunities for the producers are going to have to see an influx of capital, I think, in short order. They haven't seen that yet. The focus has been more in terms of a barbell approach uh, by portfolio managers, either investing in early stage expiration, I think in the case of specialist funds or uh, producers, established producers, large cap for, say, the general equity investors and the non-specialists. We have to start to see some of that capital come into the middle of that barbell because uh, the producers do need to replace their depleting reserve basis and inevitably, they're declining production profiles.
4: Well, the scarcity works in the favor of the junior gold miners, right? Because according to some analysts I've talked to, the scarcity that you're mentioning actually helps with the prices long-term. Do you agree or disagree with that viewpoint?
5: Look, I, I think supply um, speaks more to sentiment than fundamentals. So, so I do see declining supply, obviously declining reserves lead to declining production profiles. I think that's positive for the sentiment towards gold, but I always have believed that gold is a demand driven market. And what's driven, driven demand more than anything else is low interest rates. Uh, the lack of opportunity costs in owning physical gold is driven capital into that. Gold at the end of the day is really not a commodity. It's a currency. It has been for millennia. It's a longest standing currency that, that man has ever known. And I think the market's starting to appreciate the capital preservation characteristics that gold provides, particularly in an environment where sovereign debt is yielding negative, both the nominal real terms. You might as well own gold when fiat currencies are being printed with reckless abandon.
4: Right. Okay. So you started a gold investment fund focusing on juniors. Do you expect a lot of MA going forward then?
1: Yeah. In- inevitably, the juniors
5: that are successful in finding something, a uh, prospective, finding something that Uh, geologically has economic potential, are going to get snapped up by the established producers. Um, And and that's why I've gotten involved with Gold Royalty Corporation and its parent company, Gold Mining. Uh, Gold Royalty companies are integral uh, to finding capital to put into the ground to build build new mines. Uh, In the past cycles, uh, when we've seen a deployment of significant capital into mine construction, the royalty players have played a significant part in providing financing for those. So I wanted to get involved in a royalty vehicle that would provide that capital at much more efficient rates than you know, say raising equity at the junior side. Um, and then gold mining, the parent company, owns a collection of 14 development stage assets against which we wrote royalties. We have 14 royalties against those development stage assets that we put into gold royalty corporation. And that gold mining vehicle, the parent company, which is public, it's gold on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, it, you know, it has accumulated a portfolio of 25 million ounces of reserve and resource within those 14 development stage assets. And there are large ones, medium sized and smaller size ones. And so they'll appeal to a broad array of producers that are looking for pipeline projects that they'll want to earn into joint venture in order to replace your depleting reserve and production basis.
4: Okay. So based on your thesis here, where do you see gold prices headed from here?
5: Um, Look, I, I, I think um, Merrill Lynch came out with a forecast of $3,000 an ounce over the next 18 months. And and that's quite telling to come from a bracket US dealer. Typically, gold is perceived as a barbarous relic by the mainstream um, investor community and mainstream media. And Merrill Lynch, did not pick that number out of the air. If you look at gold's all-time peak in real terms, it was back in the early 1980s when it was over $850 an ounce. If you translate that into 2020 dollars, that's close to $3,000 an ounce. So I there's I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Merrill Lynch has come out with a a forecast of $3,000 an ounce. I think that's at least the next leg up for gold over the, the next eighteen months to two years.
4: Okay, you're one of the few execs who have a triple crown of leading a senior, junior, and now a royalty as well. So I'm going to pick your brain on all three of those. Actually, I don't know. If, I don't even know if the triple crown term is a real thing, but I'm I'm starting it now. As of now, I'm starting it with you. So let's start with your experiences with GoldCore. You were involved in the merger between GoldCore and Newmont. You advised on that deal. Tell us about that experience. Were the terms of that M&A, could they be replicated today?
5: Look, Well, there are very few players at the top. I mean, um, you know, Barrick merged with Rangold. We merged with Newmont. Uh, There are very few players that are going to be able to dance with each other uh, at the top anymore. I think large-scale consolidation is by and large done. I think it's going to be the mid-tier where there's been a proliferation of emerging producers and mid-tier producers. There are probably too many of them and they're all facing depleting reserve and production profiles and they haven't had any significant success on the exploration side. And if you're not finding it, you're going to have to buy it. Those guys are going to have to start to rationalize. Um, And and so I'd say over the next 12 months, you're gonna see when we can open up the universe to actually do physical due diligence again of each other's properties post COVID I think you're going to see um, a long line of M&A deals in the mid-tier space and the emerging uh, producer space, the, the smaller scale producers. There's way too many of them, and they're t- they risk irrelevance. They don't have the scale to track the generalist investors, they don't have the liquidity in trading, and they're going to have to scale up. And, and a great example of that is when Equinox did Leah Gold and Bria Gold, uh, those companies all merged um, in stages. They created a, um, a large-scale uh, large cap producers, and they re-rate it as a result. I think that that uh, is an illustration of what can happen if we start to see some of these smaller producers start to put themselves together, create enough scale and liquidity in the marketplace to, to achieve a re-rating.
4: When we're looking at the premiums of M&A deals, how much of those are dependent on the gold price, the gold price level? Because the higher the gold price, the, the better the sentiment from investors, the more capital flows into the space. Uh, when when you were on that deal with uh, with with newmont the the gold price then was nowhere near as high as it is now.
5: Well well actually it, it was doing fairly well. Um, you're right, it's not it wasn't a two thousand dollars an ounce, but it was it was showing strong and a strong upward trajectory. The issue for both Goldcorp and for Newmont and for that matter, Barrick and Rangold is all of us collectively were facing or individually were facing declining reserve and production profiles. And so what that, those two mergers allowed these companies to do was to create sufficient scale in order to maintain a flat production profile for the foreseeable future. There was enough within the collective pipelines, uh, within the collective portfolio of operations that you could optimize the operational portfolio to achieve a steady state production profile and achieve cost efficiencies as you cost out these projects and realize synergies on a combined basis. So it was really about achieving scale and also sustainable scale. And and that's what those two mergers did.
4: That actually leads to my next question is when you're at the helm of a major senior being involved in a mega merger on that size, we've only seen really just two on that scale. Uh, What were your priorities in in terms of having a strategic checklist? checklist? What were maybe your topic? You talked about synergy, talked about operational scale. Why? Basically, the bigger question is why would you even consider merging with Newmont, where whereas you know Goldcorp was doing fine. What what did you have on your objectives that you couldn't have done before?
5: Look, look, it was getting to that sustainable production scale, one that we could maintain over the long term. In the case of Newmont Goldcorp, uh, we felt on a combined basis um, we perform, we would have been close to eight million ounces of production, but we could rationalize that. Operating portfolio more readily with a more expansive portfolio and achieve a sustainable production profile of six to six and a half million ounces for 20 years with what we already had in the pipeline, and what we already had in production. I think similarly, if you looked at Barrick and Rangold on a combined basis, they were over six million ounces, but they, they decided that their equilibrium production rate would be somewhere between five to five and a half million ounces and they would be able to sustain that for. 10 plus years. So it was getting to a sustainable production profile where you weren't constantly chasing your tail, trying to find another seven or 8 million ounce deposit every year to sustain that production profile. There was enough in the combined portfolios to already do that without having to go and do any significant or large scale M&A going forward. And in doing that and achieving that scale and sustainable scale, uh, we were able to realize a significant re-rate in the stock. You know, When we sold Gold Corp into Newmont, we didn't take back cash, we took back paper. And so if you were a Gold Corp shareholder before uh, the merger, you've triply effectively tripled your investment both in terms of capital appreciation and dividends that have accrued to investors since the merger. Uh, if you're looking at the peak price that Newmont achieved earlier this year. So it was a significant win uh, for, for Gold Corp shareholders given the scale that we were achieve, able to achieve on a combined base and the liquidity and re-rate that was inherent in that.
4: OK, so as a CEO of, well, you were a CEO of a major and now you're involved with juniors. What were the priority differences between exploration um, activity of a senior versus exploration activity of a junior? Let's just draw the parallels uh, with the differences between Goldcore and you're now involved with Great Panther Mining. You're the chairman of that company. So in terms of Greenfield exploration, how does Newmont do it? How does Goldcore do it? How does Great Panther do it?
5: Well, look, I would say established producers are really not good at grassroots or greenfield exploration, and nor should they be, because when you're a greenfield explorer and a junior, for example, uh, your mindset's different. You're more entrepreneurial. You're embracing risk. Um, it's it's more, almost like a merchant banking type of approach. You're not doing it expecting a, a rate of return, a defined rate of return. You're prospecting. Uh, you're, you're following your nose, looking for the potential next big discovery. So inherently much riskier proposition. In fact, if you look at the value creation equation in the mining business, that's where you have the least success and the highest reward is at that very early stage. Um, Whereas if you're running an operating company like Goldcorp, like Newmont, like Barrick, it's all about avoiding risk and mitigating risk, not embracing it. So generally the exploration tends to be more brownfield in nature around existing deposits, leveraging your existing industrial complexes, extending mine life, looking for incremental expansions of your existing production profile, that's generally quite low risk. And even when you're doing um, something at the development stage within an established producer, again, that's all about mitigating risk. It's about getting to a sufficient engineering level so that you have a feasibility study that you can then approve uh, and get um, get funds approved from your board and from, from the market and a license to actually build it out. It's about achieving budget, you know, hitting targeted rates of return. Uh, that is all about risk mitigation. It's a, a completely different mindset from what you see in the Greenfield's exploration stage of, of the mining business.
4: Sure. So when when you were still CEO of Goldcore, when you spoke to investors then, what did the shareholders want? What did they prefer in terms of... Uh, expanding your portfolio? Did they see greenfield exploration or the acquisition of juniors as having a higher return of value? Which one had more uh, higher uh, net present value? Yeah, look,
5: they, they didn't want us doing early stage exploration. That's really not what they bought uh, and, and currently do not buy operating companies for. What they buy them for is predictable earnings and dividends. They want them run like real businesses. And as a result, mining companies necessarily, operating companies necessarily, have to be about risk management, risk mitigation, and managing expectations. That's not the mindset within the junior game. The junior game is all about get you know basically buying a lottery ticket, and, and if you buy my lottery ticket, you got the best chance of winning. Um, and it, it is that kind of risk embracing mindset that is is absent within operating companies, and, and necessarily so. I mean, with an operating companies, it's about hitting quarterly consensus numbers. It's, it's a grind. It requires a, a significant amount of discipline around operating uh, operating um, uh, processes and procedures. It's about hitting targets. Um, it's not about looking and prospecting for new discoveries. Um, if, if you have any success on the exploration side within producers, as I said, it's really about incremental exploration around existing operations, and and uh, industrial complexes that you've already put significant capital into, and you just want to extend mine life and extend
4: returns on those initial investments. A fund manager I've spoken to a while ago, I've said that it should really be in the responsibility uh, of junior miners and not seniors to do the exploration. Would you, would you agree with that? And then the seniors should just be buying them out. That's what the seniors really should be focused on. Precisely. I, I couldn't agree more with that. And, and
5: in fact, You know, we effectively outsourced our grassroots exploration when I was at at Gold Corp. Uh, Even when I was at Ignico, I was the CFO there for 12 years. And and Ignico, in the gold space, pioneered uh, the the practice of setting up an incubator fund to invest in Gold Juniors. You know, we had a portfolio at Gold Corp. And for that matter, Ignico, back in the day of 20 companies, we put small amounts of seed capital to work in. And we took a portfolio approach towards grassroots exploration. We outsourced it to the juniors. They're they're better at it. They better embrace the risk. And we acted more as portfolio managers rather than explorers. Um, We didn't try to bet uh, or put all of our our eggs in one basket with one explorer. We we tried to support the exploration community when they didn't have access to capital markets. and so Goldcorp was doing that at the bottom of the cycle. Nico was doing that through through the tops and bottoms of the cycle over many, many years. I was even doing it at hot day when I ran it on the base metal side. I invested in multiple juniors on the base metal side to, to allow them to do the grassroots exploration rather than try to build that infrastructure uh, that you need to
4: do that within your organization. Okay, Let's talk about royalty companies now. You are chairman and CEO of Gold Royalty Core, which is currently a subsidiary of Gold Mining, but you're Planning on taking it public. Walk us through the process here and the rationale.
5: Sure. So, Gold Mining was founded um, over 10 years ago by Amir Adnani. Um, Amir is the chairman of Gold Mining. And at the bottom of the cycle, he accumulated about 14 development stage assets. And he paid about $2.5 an ounce uh, for 25 million ounces of 43101 resource on those 14 development stage assets. At the peak of the cycle, when gold was over nineteen hundred dollars ten years ago, those fourteen public companies that he acquired that had those development stage assets collectively had a market cap of about eight hundred and fifty million dollars. He paid about eighty three million dollars for those ounces at the bottom of the cycle, so he bought them for about ten cents at the dollar on the dollar. And admittedly, at, you know, twelve hundred dollar gold or thousand dollar gold; these were sub economic uh, gold opportunities but now approaching $2,000 an ounce, suddenly uh, many of these development stage opportunities are quite attractive economically. Even at $1,500 gold, they they generate attractive rates of return. So he's been inventorying these ounces, if you will, and now we're pivoting gold mining towards incubating. In other words, stage-gating these projects, bringing them through feasibility studies, preliminary economic assessments and, and whatnot, so, that we can daylight value for the investors in gold mining. And part of that daylighting process was to actually write royalties on each of these 14 development stage assets of between a half to 2% NSR and put that into a separate vehicle that's 100% owned by gold mining, which I've now been brought in to chair and, and bring to market. I'll bring IPOing it over the next few months. And that will provide an opportunity to daylight value for gold mining shareholders, but at the same time, provide us at Gold Royalty with a currency that we can use to transact with uh, to acquire uh, other royalty opportunities and diversify the portfolio beyond
4: uh, the the mineral legacy that we've um, inherited uh, from gold mining. Are you you thinking of cross-listing? A few miners I've spoken to this year have started listing on American exchanges yeah, our focus is actually to look at, at a primary listing in
5: New York on the NYC American. So our, our focus actually is to carve out a niche there. There are very few royalty players that actually are primarily focused on the New York
4: Stock Exchange. So our focus will be a, on the US listing. So David, you're involved with more uh, junior projects. Now, if you were to build another gold core from, let's say, something the size of Great Panther, what would you do differently? What would you do that was the same?
5: Well, well, look, I I think there's an opportunity to buy operating assets right now through the combination of of a number of smaller producers and creating scale more quickly. Um, In my career, I've been involved in the construction over a a dozen uh, greenfield projects uh, that are now and still are productive mines, uh, both in the base and precious side. That's hard work. It's very capital intensive, inherently very, very risky. I think as an initial stage, uh, we have to see some consolidation among these uh, established producers, the smaller ones to create scale more instantly. So the cost of capital for these companies comes down so then they can refine the lost art of mine construction. As an industry, we have to start to put capital work and development stage opportunities. But I think as an initial stage, we have to start to see the combination of some of these smaller producers to create the scale and create a a lower cost environment to raise capital.
4: Okay, perfect. David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for having me on. I look forward to speaking with you again. And thank you for watching Kitco News. I'm David Lin, stay tuned.